Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Woman at the Well. For the third Sunday in Lent, 2008, it's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, February 24th, 2008. Three years ago, when I was in Addis Ababa, a group of us took a day trip to the mountains that circled that capital city of four million people. At the top, we prayed over the city, enjoyed the panoramic views, identified buildings in the distance below, and gasped for air while walking uphill only a short distance in the Alpine Heights. That was the fun part. The disturbing part was our ascent from the city center at 7,000 feet to the summit at 11,000 feet. As our minivan belched clouds of blue exhaust, the higher we went, the more women and girls we passed carrying loads of firewood on their backs down the mountain. Bent over at the waist, often barefooted, these women carried 75-pound bundles of eucalyptus saplings, seven feet wide, back down to the city center about 10 miles away, all for a few pennies. The women firewood carriers in Addis Ababa are a common sight, so much so that you can read about them in the Lonely Planet guidebook. I remarked to a friend in the van that if Jesus were alive today and the Gospels were written amongst these women, our New Testament would contain a story about the firewood carriers. In fact, the Gospel reading for this week from John chapter 4 contains something very similar. <clears throat> like the woman caught in the act of adultery in John chapter 8, the story of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4 reminds us that the kingdom he inaugurated is a realm of inclusion, not exclusion. Dignity, not denigration. Empowerment, rather than exploitation. And affirmation, rather than marginalization. His simple request for a drink of water provoked a dialogue with a marginalized woman that teaches us that Jesus doesn't desire any human being to shrivel and die from a parched soul. Rather, he longs to quench the deepest needs and desires of each one of us with what he calls the living water of his spirit. <clears throat> As Jesus traveled from Judea to Galilee, he stopped in the town of Sychar around noontime tired and thirsty from his journey. There he sat down by a well and asked a Samaritan woman for a drink of water. That Jesus, a Jew, would talk to a Samaritan woman shocked the woman. That he would talk to a woman surprised his own disciples. In fact, through death or divorce, this woman had gone through five marriages and was then living with a boyfriend who was not her husband. When you connect the dots of her story, 
you realize that in this one person, this woman epitomized the many ways that society marginalizes people. Jesus shatters all the taboos that held sway then and now. Gender discrimination, ritual purity, sharing a drinking cup with a Samaritan, socioeconomic poverty, any woman who had been married five times was almost certain to be very poor, religious hostility, and the moral stigma of serial marriages. In contrast to the male rabbi scholar Nicodemus in the previous chapter, John 3, the Samaritan woman displayed spiritual thirst, candor about her past, and genuine insight. She longed not only for literal water, but for what Jesus calls the living water that he offered her. So much so that in her excitement, she forgot her jar when she returned to town. This thoroughly powerless woman made such a powerful impression on Jesus and her own neighbors that John included an interesting eyewitness detail about Jesus' itinerary. Upon the neighbor's request, we read in John 4, verse 40, he stayed two days in Sychar. The woman embraced Jesus as the Messiah. Her witness converted many other fellow Samaritans in town and she herself became the cause of the story's punchline in John chapter 4, verse 42. We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we really know that this man is the Savior of the world. <clears throat> These women, the firewood carriers in Addis Ababa, and the water collector in Sikar challenge us with equal parts prophetic vinegar to develop our social consciences, but also pastoral honey to transform our inner hearts. As in so many gospel stories about God's alternative community, John chapter 4 subverts and then reverses conventional human wisdom about power relations. Jesus not only engaged a disreputable, ostracized foreign woman, he cast her as the hero of the story, a symbol of life in his kingdom, and as an ardent witness to his universal lordship. In so doing, he warns us of religiosity that turns a deaf ear to the disenfranchised, in which masks an otherwise smug, exclusionary, and self-serving faith. How easy it is to succumb to a diminished religiosity that's characterized by privatized belief, devoid of the prophetic and social witness of Jesus and the prophets, a faith ultimately which is nothing more than a small-s spirituality that is really only a sort of ad hoc wish fulfillment, or maybe a collection of little self-help techniques that we use to take the edge off of our lives. The kingdom that Jesus announced is not one of a privatized faith whose purpose is to guarantee personal peace and affluence. Contrary to so many popular Christian counterfeits, his kingdom doesn't peddle 
what one sociologist, Christian Smith of the University of North Carolina, laments as the god of moral therapeutic deism, a sort of divine butler whose job it is to make us feel good. Rather, Jesus proclaimed that God longs to assuage the deepest needs, spiritual and material, of the morally, spiritually, religious, religiously and economically least and lost. He invites us to join him in that service. Jesus also offers each one of us the living water that is the life-giving action of his spirit in the deepest recesses of our being. In the beautiful poetry of the Hebrew prophet Isaiah, chapters 55, verses 1 to 3, God welcomes every person, rich or poor, to drink deeply of what he alone can give us and what all that our culture offers, money, jobs, prestige, the proper zip code, the right university, or the latest diet, what can never satisfy. Listen to Isaiah's words. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me, hear me, that your soul may live. To the call of outward service to the vulnerable, these women add the invitation to inward personal renewal contained in the words of Jesus in John chapter 4, verse 14. Everyone who drinks this ordinary well water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And now for further reflection. Consider the observation by Jared Diamond in a recent op-ed piece in the New York Times, January 2, 2008. Jared Diamond is a professor of geography at UCLA. He observes that consumption rates for the one billion people in the first world are 32 times greater than the consumption rates of the five billion people in the developing world. And so I wonder, has this gluttony of consumption brought us human fulfillment? Or again, how and where might Jesus call you to break powerful cultural taboos such as those featured in the story of the Samaritan woman? And finally, for further reading, see the book by Frank Anthony Spina, reviewed at our webzine. The title is called The Faith of the Outsider, Exclusion and Inclusion in the Biblical Story, Grand Rapids, Erdman's, 2005.
books this week, I review a book by David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons. It's called Unchristian, What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity. Grand Rapids, Baker Bookhouse, 2007, 255 pages. Five years ago in his book, The Heart of Christianity, Marcus Borg of Oregon State University described how his university students have a uniformly negative image of Christianity. When I ask them to write a short essay on their impression of Christianity, says Borg, they consistently use five adjectives. Christians are literalistic, anti-intellectual, self-righteous, judgmental, and bigoted. Christians might object, rather defensively, that it's unfair to draw sweeping conclusions based upon the report of one person like Borg. If you think that way, you'd be right in your logic, but wrong in your conclusion. This new book, Unchristian, by David Kinnaman of the Barna Group, presents objective research that supports Borg's subjective anecdote. Kinnaman's three-year study documents how an overwhelming percentage of 16 to 29-year-olds view Christians with hostility, resentment, and disdain. These broadly and deeply negative views of Christians aren't just superficial stereotypes with no basis in reality, says Kinnaman. Nor are the critics people who've had no contact with churches or Christians. It would be a tragic mistake, he argues, for believers to protest that outsider outrage at Christians is a misperception. Rather, it's based upon their real experiences with today's Christians. In addition to their statistical research, the book includes anecdotes from people who were interviewed, follow-on comments at the end of each chapter by some 30 Christian leaders, and reflections about why we've come to such a place and how we might make things better. According to Kinnaman's Barna study, here are the percentages of people outside the church who think that the following words describe present-day Christians and Christianity. Anti-homosexual, 91%. Judgmental, 87%. Hypocritical, 85%. Old-fashioned, 78%. Too political, 75%. Out of touch with reality, 72%. Insensitive to others, 70%. Boring, 68%. It would be hard to overestimate, says Kinnaman, how firmly people reject and feel rejected by Christians. Or think about it this way, he suggests. When you introduce yourself as a Christian to a friend, neighbor, or business associate who's an outsider, you might as well have it tattooed on your arm, anti-homosexual, gay-hater, homophobic. You probably don't think of yourself in these terms, of course, 
but that's probably what outsiders think of you. Gabe Lyons of the Fermi Project, who commissioned the Barna research, remembers his first look at the data. I'll never forget sitting in Starbucks, poring through the research results on my laptop. As I soaked it in, I glanced at the people around me and was overwhelmed at the thought that this is what they think of me. It was a sobering thought to know that if I had stood up and announced myself as a Christian to the customers assembled in Starbucks that day, they would have associated me with every one of the negative perceptions described in this book. And in conclusion then, sad to say, Marcus Borg was even more right than he knew. David Kinneman and Gabe Lyons Unchristian, what a new generation really thinks about Christianity. Baker Bookhouse, 2007. For film this week, I review Helvetica from the year 2007. American Airlines hasn't changed its corporate logo in 40 years, and there's a good reason why. It's one word in a clean, simple, rational, and entirely unobjectionable font called Helvetica. Created by the Swiss in 1957, Helvetica is like the air or like gravity, like painting your room white or wearing khaki pants in a navy blazer. Helvetica does not need and does not want any exclamation points. For typeface designers and graphic artists, Helvetica was like a landslide waiting to happen. And happen it did, especially after Helvetica became the default font for Apple and then Microsoft Windows in area. Helvetica is one of the most ubiquitous cultural artifacts you could possibly identify. Anywhere and everywhere you look, you'll find Helvetica, a tax form the numbers on the top of a bus, the font on the side of the Challenger space shuttle, the signs for the New York City subway, and on and on it goes. In many ways, Helvetica is the perfect metaphor for modernism, which is why postmodernists consider it dull, lifeless, conformist, corporate, and utterly lacking in any personality. Grunge typographers loathe it today and replace it with their contorted fonts placed every which way. The producer and director of this film, Gary Hustwit, interviewed over a dozen typomaniacs of various persuasions who explain how and why Helvetica is the ultimate form and content of a globalized aesthetic. This is not only an interesting film in itself, but a fascinating piece of cultural analysis of our modern, or should I say, postmodern visual world. Helvetica, from the year 2007. And finally, for poetry, we continue our series of poems for Lent by George Herbert, who lived from 1593 to 1633. 
The title of this week's poem by George Herbert is called Love Three. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, Who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. George Herbert, 1593 to 1633. The name of the poem is Love 3. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, February 24th, 2008, the third Sunday in Lent.